Scared to Death is explicit in every way. Please take care while listening. Whether thou art a ghost that hath come from the earth, or a phantom of night that hath no hollow, or one that lieth dead in the desert, or a ghost unburied, or a demon, or a ghoul, whatever thou be until thou art removed, thou shalt find here no water to drink. Thou shalt not stretch forth thy hand to our own. Into our house enter thou not. Through our fence break through thou not. We are protected, though we may be frightened. Our life you may not steal, though we may be scared to death. Welcome to Scared to Death, Creeps Peepers, Roberts and Annabelles. I'm Dan. Hello, Dan. I am... I'll be me. I'm Lindsay. Okay, okay Lindsay. I was just checking. I was like, no, do I want to be Annabelle? Mm. Do I want to be Robert? No, but I'm just me. Uh, episode 144 today, Lulu, Lindsay, Marie. Uh, over 500 total stories and counting now. That's wild. Mm-hmm. So many spoops. Uh, thanks to everyone who continues to stay on this ride of ours. Uh, still loving horror as much as ever. Uh, hope you are too. And actually speaking of loving horror, uh, I keep thinking about the uh, the black phone. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they. Sp- I mean, they sponsor full transparency. Like they sponsored the show, not for what I'm doing now, but for an ad. It, but like we watched the trailer, two trailers Ooh, actually. Got chills. Mm-hmm, to see like, you know, uh, what the movie looks like. You know, we're always looking for like new good horror movies. Mm-hmm. I, I think Ethan Hawke, when he's at the top of his game, is a phenomenal actor. Like, I really yes. like him and have for a long time. Like, going back to, like, what is it, True Romance and mm-hmm. all that. And, uh, but I don't I don't know that he's played, like, a horror lead before. Not that I could think of. And the critical stuff I looked into, I looked, look, looked into it a little further after we did our ad read. And uh, he's getting, like, really good feedback for his portrayal. I didn't know it was based on a book oh. um, that came out just a couple years ago. But it just um it looks like it could be a really good summer horror movie, and I'm always such a fan of those. Mm-hmm. Maybe you'll uh, maybe you'll watch this one in the theater with me. I want to watch I, it in the theater. I said I would. I I, I already committed to this. Okay, good. Okay, good. Uh, it's not a surprise that I said I would go. Okay. I, I know sometimes I chicken out, mm-hmm. but <laughs> so I can see where your hesitation comes from. But what I like about uh, the black phone, honestly, what mm-hmm. uh, what what always like messes me up the most but also draws me in the most is when it's a little bit of a psychological thriller as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. I could watch Saw movies for days and just be like, okay, whatever. It just doesn't affect me in the same way. Yeah. Except the very first Saw, that one messed me up. Yeah, but, but like, then you're kind of used to it. it gets j- you get jaded. Exactly. And they just don't carry the same kind of weight like this black phone thing in the preview. It, it They just kind of like show this kid being abducted and I'm like, oh, as a kid, that was a massive, very real fear I had. Mm-hmm. And now as an adult with children, that is a different kind of fear. But I also carry that with me. And I like that they have seemed to blend uh, horror and psychological together, which is a great combo where it's like, take the paranormal. I mean, and I'm basing all of this off just a trailer. Where we learned everything <laughs> about the movie. But like, it looks like you take away any paranormal elements and it's still just a scary, mm-hmm. more true crime vibe, you know, like the cr- crime kind of thriller. Like Silence of the Lambs like kind of, of Lambs. feeling. Yeah, but then you layer ghosts on top of that. And I'm like, oh, cool. Yeah. So, I mean, hopefully it's not shit. Hopefully it's not a lot of, because there are those horror movies sometimes where like the trailer is great. And then you watch it and you're like, oh, what? They took all the good parts from a two-hour movie and put it in a two-minute trailer. Isn't that just movies in general anymore? Yeah. It's like, oh, look, I know what the whole movie's about. I, I saw all the good things. Luckily, I don't have a great memory. I, I try not to remember too much on those the trailer stuff. I try not to like really yeah. hold on to it so that hopefully by the time I get into the theater to watch it, mm-hmm. it's kind of gone away. Okay, fair enough. But anyway, I'm excited about horror. Um, uh, two quick announcements, then our show. Okay. Uh, new Nightmare Man tea and coffee mug in the store at badmagicmerch.com. Love me a coffee mug. Do you know Joe Paisley is a mm. one mug man? 
He just likes the same mug. Yeah, he likes to, he likes he, to vary it around. He, he just uses one over and over <laughs> and over, and it's weird. Uh, this is the first design I've seen in a while that made me cringe a bit in a good Ooh, way. Ooh, okay. Right? Which is a compliment in the world of horror. It's it just disturbing. Would not want to see this face in the mirror. And then I know you have our other announcement. In fact, I do. I have two announcements myself, and uh, I have our charity for June to announce. But before we do, yeah. uh, Dan and I and the team at Bad Magic just wanted to take a moment to express our sincere sympathies to those whose lives and just entire worlds have been forever changed by the shootings in Buffalo and Uvalde. Our, our hearts go out to you in all the ways that they possibly can. Yeah. Yep. Obviously, uh, both situations, senseless and beyond tragic. Yeah, so we are we are thinking of you and um, holding you in our hearts. And now for something more fun and lighter to soften that edge. Uh, this month's charity is so, so incredible. I'm mm -hmm. so stoked about this one. Uh, was a suggestion from a fan. Um, a yet-to-be-calculated amount of money will be donated to the Rainbow Railroad in honor of Pride Month and in honor of all of those who we love in our lives and in our community in the LGBTQI+. Plus community. Uh, the Rainbow Railroad was founded in 2006. It's a nonprofit. It's so cool what they do. They assist LGBTQI plus people facing persecution wherever they live because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. They help get them out of where they are if they're in danger because of who they are, yep, yep. simply simply for being who they are. And they try to get them to a safer country sometimes and mm -hmm. sometimes just to a safe house to protect them. Uh, the work is so complex and so incredibly important to get involved. You can volunteer or for more information or to request help. Right, if you need help. If you or someone you love needs this kind of help, please go to rainbowrailroad.org. It's a really incredible charity. There's mm -hmm. so much more information on their website that I couldn't possibly condense into a quick announcement. Very, very cool. Absolutely. Some of these charities, like how sad that they need to exist. What? Yeah, uh, but also yeah. how great that they do exist because the need is there. Yeah, yeah. We, we love those warriors on both those who can think outside of themselves mm -hmm. enough to create these charities because so often yeah. it's not even somebody who's in that community. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's not even someone affected directly by this, but they're just someone who sees a need and says like, I want to help. And that's yep. such a beautiful kind of soul. Somebody with some great empathy uh, who's willing to take action. Yeah. Um, so how many stories? You have You have just one today, right? I have one big one, which I don't feel like I've done in some yeah. time. Um, such a weird story. I was mm -hmm. giving Dan a slight overview before we started where I just said, it's so weird and i cannot for sure claim or or pinpoint where it might be paranormal other than the whole vibe just feels huh strange okay and if it is not paranormal something else very incredibly strange is going on with this family all right i like 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 both stories i have today are also just you know odd stories one is very well known one i had never heard of and it really i find it very haunting and can't believe i hadn't heard of it before both got a fair amount of documentation uh in the press when they happened or supposedly happened yeah, I, I one is very big, so I'm going to start off with one of the bigger stories I've told here, followed by one of the smaller stories I've told here. Okay. So, so it's a different kind of um, way of breaking things up. And I, I like both. I think I actually like the smaller one more. It's like just enough details and just enough of a little like, oh, my God, that it just like lingers. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I hope you like it as much as I do. So, um, yeah, the first one is the basis of the 1993 sci-fi mystery film Fire in the Sky. I never saw that. Yeah, movie that definitely falls under the horror category for people like you. Uh, was Travis Walton really abducted on, uh, by and experimented on by aliens? Aye, aye, aye. So his story would go on to become one of the most heavily documented alien abduction claims in U.S. history. And I'm honestly surprised we haven't already covered it. 
Uh, my second story involves uh, claims of a curse. Did an actual oh. witch curse a 35-year-old man in 1991? Did he die as a direct result? Sounds crazy, but the documented details of this very haunting story, uh, incredibly disturbing. Yeah, was Christopher literally scared to death? Oh my gosh, it's so crazy that you have a story of this nature because we don't talk about our stories in advance mm -hmm. other than two minutes before we sit down. And in a couple weeks, I also have a weird curse story out of Nigeria. It oh. Is, it is strange. Yeah, this one too. This one is... It, I mean, it feels like a movie, but I like I did extra research, and there's newspaper articles about mm. this. Like this person really did die. People really did say the things that they say in this story. I mean, it feels so much like a good horror movie. Huh. Terrible for this person. Yeah. But man, um, okay. Do you feel like uh, jumping into a wild and interesting story that I don't think you'll find as cool? <laughs> About abductions? Nice, nice, nice. Okay, so my socks this week mm -hmm. are, one, my favorite color, black. So thank you very much mm -hmm. to Teresa Smith, who brought these to your show in Springfield, Missouri. They are uh -huh. socks yeah. uh, representing Pitt State University. Now, they're a little logo thing. I couldn't figure out what it is. I think it's like a gorilla or a monkey or gorilla. something. I wore the, and I wore the Pitt State t-shirt uh, Saturday Late <laughs> Show because that room got so hot on stage. I've never sweated like that before it was, during it shows. Was, it was so my wild. My whole shirt. With sweat. It was wild, cool, and interesting to see Dan suddenly form boobs <laughs> underneath his pecs. It was mm -hmm. just sweat. Uh, so much sweat. I had to stare at this for so long to figure out what it was because I refused to look it up. I was like, <laughs> what is it? What is it? But thank you, Teresa. Uh, thank you for my Pitt yeah, State University you. socks. And good luck to your son, Mason. He's going to be starting school there, studying uh, plastics engineering. Wow. Okay. So he's smart. He's smart. Yeah. yeah. Good for you, buddy. Okay, here we go. On November 5th, 1975... 22-year-old Travis Walton's life changed forever. Travis was working in the Apache Sitgraves National Forest near the small 6,000-person town of Snowflake, Arizona, <laughs> when he went missing for five days. Police searched for him with helicopters and sent dogs. His coworkers ended up even uh, being accused of murder when they couldn't find him. But then Travis reappeared roughly 30 miles away on the side of the road near the 1,000-person unincorporated community of Heber, Arizona, now Heber Overgard. He and his co-workers claimed he had been abducted by aliens. The group said they encountered a saucer-shaped object hovering over the ground the day Travis disappeared. When Travis left the truck and approached the flying object, a beam of light shot out and knocked him unconscious. The other six men drove away in fear. When they came back later, Travis was gone. Travis said after the beam of light knocked him out, he woke up in a hospital-like room where three humanoid creatures were observing him, fought with them before a human-looking figure led him into another room, then three other human-looking figures put a clear plastic mask over his face, causing him to black out. And then initially, Travis had no other memories until he woke up five days later on the highway and saw the flying saucer departing above him. Whoa. National Enquirer would award Travis a $5,000 prize for best UFO case of the year after he passed polygraphs from the Enquirer and the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, APRO. In fact, all of Travis's co-workers except one passed polygraphs. The one who didn't pass just had an inconclusive test. In 1978, Travis wrote a book called The Walton Experience, which became the basis for the 1993 film Fire in the Sky. Travis would tell a journalist for the Phoenix News Times in 1993, my way of handling the abduction has been to kind of push this thing into the background. For a long time, I wouldn't talk about it with the media. We never discuss it around the house. Skeptics think his whole story was nothing more than a hoax done for money. Noted UFO researcher and skeptic Philip J. Class even publicly attacked Travis's story. To this day, Travis's family and the remaining living witnesses insist that the story is 100% true. There may even be evidence to prove some of what happened on the night of November 5th, 1975. 
Time now for the tale of the alien abduction of Travis Walton. November 5th, 1975 was a Wednesday and a normal workday. Travis Walton wrote in his book, there was nothing in the sunny fall morning to foreshadow the tremendous foreshadow the tremendous fear, shock, and confusion we would all be feeling as darkness fell. The group was working a job called the Turkey Springs Tree Thinning Contract. On the 5th, they were cutting a fuel reduction strip up the crest of a ridge in the Apache Sitgraves National Forest. According to Travis, fuel reduction is the process of cutting the thinning slash into lengths and piling it up to be burned in the wet season, just to help cut down on forest fires. Of course. Mike Rogers was the oldest of the group and the boss. He had been working contracts for the U.S. Forest Service for nine years. Turkey Springs was the best contract he'd been awarded and the highest price per acre he'd ever received. Travis Walton, Alan Dallas, and John Goulet were all cutting trees, while Dwayne Smith, Kenneth Peterson, and Steve Pierce were following the cutters and piling up branches as they made, made their way up the strip. Most of the men had personal connections outside of work. Travis was dating Dana, Mike's sister. John Gallette was Travis's brother-in-law. <laughs> Dwayne Smith and Alan Dallas were John's friends. And Alan was known for his troubled past and tendency to start fights. The men worked per usual until 6 p.m. that day before packing up their tools into a truck and piling inside for the long drive home. Mike Rogers drove. Travis sat in the passenger seat. They were driving by, uh, they were driving by 6, 10 p.m. and expected to be home by 7.30 the men in the back smoked while Mike drove, and everyone made jokes about how the old truck was clunking along on the uneven roads. Travis wrote, Just then, my eye was caught by a light coming to the trees on the right, a hundred yards ahead. I idly assumed that the glow was the sun going down in the west. Then it occurred to me that the sun had set a half hour ago. Curious, I thought it might be the light of some hunters camped there. Headlights, maybe a fire. Some of the guys must have caught sight of it too because the men on the right side of the truck had fallen silent. My eyes strained to make sense of the glimmering through the dense strand of trees blocking our vision. From my open window, I could see the yellowish brilliance washing across our path onto the road another 40 yards ahead. Intrigued, I was impatient to get past the intervening pines. Mike wanted to know what they were seeing. Dwayne said, I don't know, but it looked like a crashed plane hanging in a tree. Mike now drove to where they could have an unobstructed view. When they got that, John called out for him to stop the truck. Travis jumped out to get a closer look. According to Mike, he was out before the truck even stopped moving. Travis described what they now all saw in his book. There, a mere 20 feet above the ground, a strange golden disc hovered silently. The craft was stationary, hovering well below the treetops near the crest of the ridge. The hard mechanical precision of the luminous vehicle was in sharp contrast to the primitive ruggedness of the dark surroundings. Its edges were clearly defined. The golden machine was starkly outlined against the deepening blue of the clear evening sky. I estimated the object to have an overall diameter of 15 or 20 feet. It was 8 or 10 feet thick. The flattened disc had a shape like that of two gigantic pie, uh, pie pans placed lip to lip with a small round bowl turned upside down on the top. Barely visible at our, ang our angle of sight, the white dome peaked over the upper outline of the ship. We could see darker stripes of a dull silver sheen that divided the glowing areas into panel-like sections. The dim yellowish light given off by the surface had the luster of hot metal fresh from a blast service. surface. There were no visible antenna or protrusions of any kind. Nothing that resembled a hatch, ports, or window-like structures could be seen. There was no motion and no sound from the craft. It appeared to be dead in the air. Turning back to that impelling spectacle in the air, I was suddenly seized with the urgency to see the craft at close range. The men asked him what he was doing, but Travis approached the object despite their protests. Travis hesitated for a moment, wondering if this was a good idea. He then reassured himself that he wouldn't get too close. 
and would walk away after just a moment. He stopped about six feet away from the craft. He was filled with a tremendous sense of awe and curiosity. He could hear a low humming and a high-pitched beeping coming from the ship. Mike called out for him to come back, breaking Travis's attention for a moment. When Travis turned back, he was surprised by a powerful, thunderous swell in the uh, volume of the vibrations from the craft. To Travis, it sounded like multiple turbine generators all starting up at once. Then the saucer began wobbling on its axis like a top. Travis wrote, I ducked into a crouch when a tremendously bright blue-green ray shot from the bottom of the craft. I saw and heard nothing. All I felt was the numbing force of a blow that felt like a high-voltage electrocution. The intense bolt made a sharp cracking or popping sound. The stunning concussion of the foot-wide beam struck me full in the head and chest. My mind sank quickly into unfeeling blackness. According to the crew, Travis arched his back, outstretched his limbs. He was lifted off the ground, went flying back 10 feet, and landed on his shoulder. Mike immediately drove off, speeding down the dangerous road erratically. They were terrified that the ship would follow them, but it never did. Mike admitted years later in a 2022 Discovery Channel documentary that he took off in a blind panic. He was terrified, then stopped a quarter mile down the road. He said he began crying and panicking. He considered Travis a good friend. He was still terrified, but he knew he had to go back for him. Some of the other men also wanted to go back for Travis, but others didn't. Mike suggested to make a fire for some of them to wait by while the others went uh, back for Travis. As Mike was setting up the fire, he swore he saw the golden disc rise above the trees and fly off at an impossible speed. Now they all decided they should go uh, back and look for Travis, but he was gone. They made it back to and searched the area and called out Travis's name, but received no response. It was as if he'd never been there. There were no strange objects left behind, no disturbances in the ground, no burns from the beam of light. Now they decided to turn back around, drive towards home, and tell the police. Meanwhile, Travis woke up in unbearable pain. He was lying on his back on some kind of table. He felt like he'd been burned. His mouth was dry and filled with metallic taste. He felt weak and sick. When he focused his vision, he saw a rectangular, rectangle-shaped light above him. It looked like the ceiling was triangle-shaped. At first, he thought he was in a hospital, but noticed that he was still wearing his work clothes. Something cool and smooth then touched his chest. A strange device curved across my body, he said. It was about four or five inches thick, and I could feel that it extended from my armpits to a few inches above my belt. It curved down to the middle of each side of my ribcage. It appeared to be made of a shiny, dark gray metal or plastic. Travis looked up and saw three blurry figures that looked like doctors. They wore white masks, caps, and orange gowns. Suddenly, Travis, Travis's blurry vision cleared. I was looking squarely into the face of a horrible creature, he said. It looked steadily back at me with huge, luminous eyes the size of quarters. Travis hit the creature closest to him. It felt soft and spongy, more fat than muscle. Despite his weakened state, the creature fell backwards. Travis managed to stand up, uh, which knocked the metal device on him to the floor. The metal device emitted beams of green light now. Thankfully, Travis wasn't connected to any wires or tubes. He was so weak he could barely move. The three humanoids reached for him. Travis grabbed a grass-like cylinder tube as a weapon, shouted at the humanoids to keep back. He provided a detailed description of the humanoids in his book. He said, They stood still, mutely. They were a little under five feet in height. They had a basic humanoid form. Two legs, two arms, hands with five digits each, and a head with a normal human arrangement of features. But beyond the outline, any similarity to humans was terrifyingly absent. Their thin bones were covered with white, marshmallowy-looking flesh. They had on single-piece overall or coverall-type suits made of soft suede-like material, orangish-brown in color. I could not see any grain in the material, such as cloth has. In fact, their clothes did not appear to have any seams. I saw no buttons, zippers, or snaps. They wore no belts. 
The loose, billowy garments were gathered at the wrists and perhaps the ankles. They didn't have any kind of raised collar at the neck. They wore simple pinkish tan footwear. I could not make out the details of their shoes, but they had very small feet. When they extended their hands towards me, I noticed they had no fingernails. Their hands were small, delicate, without hair. Their thin, round fingers looked soft and unwrinkled. Their smooth skin was so pale, it looked chalky like ivory. Their bald heads were disproportionately large for their puny bodies. They had bulging, oversized craniums, a small jaw structure, and an underdeveloped appearance to their features that was almost infantile. Their thin-lipped mouths were narrow. I never saw them open. Lying close to their heads on either side were tiny, crinkled lobes of ears. Their miniature rounded noses had small, oval nostrils. The only facial feature that didn't appear underdeveloped were those incredible eyes. Those glistening orbs had brown irises twice the size of those of a normal human's eye, nearly an inch in diameter. The iris was so large that even parts of the pupils were hidden by the lids, giving the eyes a certain cat-like appearance. There was very little of the whitest part of the eyes showing. They had no lashes, no eyebrows. Travis was going to attempt a second attack, but the creatures abruptly left the room. And then Travis collapsed on a bench. He observed his surroundings and saw what looked like medical tools on a tray, but couldn't recognize any of them. He saw a hallway outside the door and a narrow hallway to his right. He pulled himself off the bench, headed out of his room, and turned left. The hallway curved left before him, then right. He saw a room, but was too scared to look inside. As Travis sluggedly uh, walked away, he noticed how humid the air was, felt like he couldn't take in a full breath. He found a doorway that led to a round room with a domed ceiling. There were three doorways within the room, which was empty except for one chair facing away from him. Travis made his way through the room. He noticed that the closer he got to the chair, the darker the room got. He stepped back and forward and noticed the change, writing, The closer I got to it, the darker the room became. Small points of light became visible on or through the walls, even the floor. I stepped back and the effect diminished. I stepped forward and increased again, the points of light becoming brighter in contrast to the darkening background. It was like the stars coming into view in the evening, only much faster. The matte gray of the metal wall just faded out to be replaced by the glinting speckled deep black of space. The chair had controls on it. The left side had a lever, the right side had a small screen with black lines and buttons. Travis pushed one of the buttons, nothing happened. He pushed another, and the lines on the screen moved. Another button, and the lines moved again. Travis sat down and pulled the lever, saw that the stars all moved downward. He took his hand off, and they stopped moving. Travis walked to the other side of the room, and the lights came back on. He went to one of the doors, but couldn't figure out how to open it. He went back to the chair to look at the buttons again, and heard a noise. What looked like another human stood in the doorway now, a tall, muscular man wearing a helmet. He wore a tight blue suit, black boots, and a black belt. Travis ran to the man, asked him questions, but he stood silently. He took Travis by the arm, led him down a hallway. They paused in a metal cubicle-like room for a few minutes. The man, or whatever he really was, refused to speak to Travis. Another doorway now opened, bringing in fresh spring-like air. Travis and his captor descended a ramp into a huge room. Travis described it in detail, saying, The ceiling was sectioned into alternating rectangles of dark metal and those that gave off light. The ceiling itself curved down to form one of the larger walls in the room. The room was shaped like one quarter of a cylinder laid on its side. There were other UFOs in this room, and they seemed to walk out of the ship Travis had been in, uh, taken in board, taken board on to get to this room. Had they flown into another larger spaceship? Travis said, the outside of the craft we had just left was shaped like the one we had seen in the woods, but was much darker, or much larger, about 60 feet in diameter and 16 feet high. It did not emit light, instead it had a surface of shiny brushed metal luster. It seemed to radiate a faint heat from its hull. The craft either sat flat on its bottom or, if it had legs, they were only a few inches high. 
It sat nearly in the middle of a large room. On my left, towards one, of the, uh, towards one end of this large room, there were two or three oval-shaped saucers, reflecting light like highly polished chrome. I could see two of them very clearly in a, silverly, in a silvery reflection that could have been another shiny rounded craft. They were about 40 or 45 feet in diameter, quite a bit smaller than the angular vehicle I had just come out of. I saw no projections or breaks in the smooth, shiny, flattened spheres. They sat on very rounded bottoms, and I could see, not see how they, how they balanced that way. Travis and his human-ish captor crossed the massive room through another doorway into a wide hallway. At the end of the hallway was a pair of double doors that led to a square white room with a table and a chair. Two other human-looking figures awaited them, a man and a woman standing around the table in blue uniforms, but not wearing helmets. The man was muscular. The woman had, as Travis described, a perfect body. They had clear skin with freckles, or without freckles, blemishes, scars, or wrinkles. All the human-looking figures looked very much alike, but not quite identical. Travis asked, Would somebody please tell me where I am? What the hell is going on? What is this place? They didn't answer. One man and the woman now approached him and took him by the arm. They lifted him onto the table as if he weighed nothing. When he resisted, they effortlessly pushed him back down. The woman then pulled out what looked like an oxygen mask with a small black sphere attached. She pressed it against Travis's face, and he quickly blacked out. Back on Earth, Travis's friends and the logging crew were finding a phone at a substation, having finally gotten off the dirt road. They called the local sheriff's department. Sheriff's Deputy Chuck Ellison responded to the call. Ellison, when he arrived, smelled the men for signs of marijuana and alcohol use. They appeared to be sober. He spoke to each of them alone, and they all gave the same story. Travis had been abducted by a UFO. Ellison called in Sheriff Marlon Gillespie to see what he thought of all this. Gillespie also looked for signs of alcohol use. He told Mike that he'd have to go back to where Travis went missing, and two volunteers needed to go with him. Mike, Allen, and Kenny went back to the forest with Sheriff Gillespie. Gillespie couldn't find any burns, footprints, or signs that an aircraft had touched down at the worksite. Gillespie then told the group they had to wait until morning to form an official search party. The Sheriff's Department first had to inform Travis's family that he was missing. According to Travis's older brother, Don, after his mom was called by the sheriff, she came to his house crying hysterically, saying, They got him. They got him. Dana, Travis's girlfriend, was shocked and scared. She wasn't sure if she believed that Travis had been abducted, but the men genuinely seemed like they were telling the truth. They seemed truly traumatized by what they saw. On November 6th, news of Travis's abduction made its way to the local papers. Now all kinds of people were debating whether they believed the story or not. The town marshal thought the Waltons orchestrated the whole scenario, and the crew didn't know about it. The local police thought Travis was a troublemaker because he'd once been arrested for a traffic violation as a teen... <laughs> and then escaped through a ventilator. Travis said he just wanted to prank the police. In another incident, Travis received a two-year suspended sentence for forgery. And some of the Waltons had spoken about wanting to be picked up by flying saucers before. One anonymous woman reported that Travis came up to her before his disappearance with a story about being chased by a flying saucer. Was he laying down groundwork for a bogus future abduction claim, or had he truly been encountering extraterrestrials leading to a genuine abduction? Travis's brother, Dwayne, admitted that he and Travis had a pact that if one of them were ever to be taken onto a UFO, they would come back for the other person. Dwayne later told the Arizona Republic that they may have seen 12 to 14 UFOs over the past dozen years. Five or six were just as definite as anything you could imagine, he said. Lies? Or, again, had extraterrestrials been monitoring the Waltons? Was the abduction a planned event years in the making? The sheriff's department started searching for, the, for Travis the day after he went missing on the 6th. They brought helicopters, dogs, volunteers into the forest. Shortly into the search, the police started to think that the crew got into a fight with Travis and killed him. 
Or maybe there had been an accident with a chainsaw, and fearing being held responsible in some way, they hid his body. The police quickly looked to Mike for answers he didn't have. According to John Gallette, a deputy told him, if you tell us where the body is, we can all go home. Regional law enforcement headquarters in Albuquerque soon sent a man with a Geiger counter to the site, used to measure uh, radiation. It seems that they were at least somewhat open to the remote possibility that a UFO was involved in Travis's appearance. Don Walton said years later he saw the Geiger counter in action. He said he witnessed the counter spike indicating a high level of radiation at the UFO site. In fact, he said the needle went off the scale. This would be the only physical evidence that something very unusual had happened in the area. On November 7th, the following day, the search continued. The story now spread to international news outlets. Reporters from all over were swarming the town now to try and get more information. Some people described as plain-clothed government employees showed up and joined the search party. Men in suits and sunglasses reportedly began to follow some of the crew around town. Men in black, perhaps? By November 8th, the sheriff's department started treating the case as a homicide. They had ruled their suspects down to Alan and John. They learned that Alan and Travis had recently gotten into a fight and that Alan wasn't fond of Mike or Travis. Don Walton now accused Alan of murdering Travis. Sheriff Gillespie even tried to talk Alan into making a confession. And the sheriff's department asked all the men who worked with Travis when he disappeared to submit to a polygraph test. On November 10th, the crew showed up at the courthouse, terrified they'd all fail their lie detector tests and be arrested. And be arrested. Everyone answered questions for two hours. Five out of six passed. Alan passed the first two times, but was inconclusive on the third try because he got frustrated and pulled loose from the machine. Law enforcement working the case were stunned. The DPS polygraph operator was, quote, convinced they did see something they described as a UFO. Hours after this, Travis returned to Earth or at least returned from wherever he'd been. Travis woke up laying on the side of the road. He wrote, Consciousness returned to me on the night I awoke to find myself on the cold pavement west of Heber. I was lying on my stomach, my head on my right forearm. Cold air brought me instantly awake. I looked up in time to see a light turn off at the bottom of a curved, gleaming hole. As I raised my head up, a white light caught my eye just before it blinked off. Either a light had been turned off or a hatch had been closed, cutting off light from inside. I only caught a glimpse as I raised my head. I could not be sure which it was. Travis now saw a silver disc hovering above the road about 40 feet across. It hovered, then shot vertically into the sky, departing silently. Travis now stood up on shaky legs. He recognized where he was. The road would lead him into town, so he started walking. He stopped at a building across from the Union 76 service station, but nobody answered. He found telephone booths at an Exxon, called his sister. Travis's brother-in-law, Grant Neff, answered. It was late the evening of Monday, November 10th. Travis said on the phone, This is Travis Walton. I need help and I'm hurting. Get Dwayne down here. Then he added, They brought me back. I'm out here in Heber. Please get somebody to come and get me. Grant thought it was a prank call, but Travis insisted it was him. Grant agreed to drive 33 miles to pick him up, brought Travis's brother Dwayne with him. Travis was found crumpled on the floor of the phone booth when they arrived. Travis tried to tell Dwayne and Grant what had happened. Uh, They didn't seem like they believed him. Travis thought he'd only been gone for a few hours. But Dwayne said he'd been gone for five days. Travis felt his face, noticed that his beard had grown out as if he'd gone multiple days without shaving. Dwayne and Grant first took him home. Travis said he was hungry, ate something, but then complained of feeling nauseous. Travis's family kept him uh, kept his return a secret for as long as they could because they didn't think he was stable enough yet to talk to police. Dwayne would act as Travis's public spokesman for the first few days. Dwayne called the sheriff's office to inform them they found Travis and were taking him to a hospital because he seemed confused. Once at the hospital, Travis reported head and chest pain. 
Dwayne called Sheriff Gillespie, personally offered to set up a meeting if Gillespie would travel to Phoenix alone without camera or tape recorder. Dwayne also reached out to Jim Lorenzen, head of APRO. Doctors agreed to examine Travis. Dwayne snuck him out of town to a hotel in Phoenix. Travis explained what happened to the doctors. His blood and urine would run through the county medical examiner's uh, drug screen, detected no traces of any drugs. On November 14th, Travis met with Dr. James Harder from APRO to undergo regressive hypnosis. It did not work to uncover new memories, but it helped him articulate what he did remember. Travis failed to show up at the DPS office in Phoenix on November 14th for his polygraph. Dr. Harder issued a statement on the 14th, uh, same day. Uh, The case of the UFO encounter experienced by Travis Walden is being investigated by APRO. Medical tests and examinations have been conducted by physicians associated with APRO. It is APRO's opinion that Travis has been through a severe shock and has been shaken by the episode. He's been advised by doctors to rest before submitting to any further examinations pursuant to the investigation. The wide range of scientific tests and the investigation planned by this organization at the request of Travis Walton are likely to take five or six weeks. Following the publication today of a statement by Navajo County Sheriff Marlon Gillespie that he doesn't believe Walton's story, Travis has declined for the present to take the polygraph test arranged by the sheriff. Only when Travis left the Phoenix Hotel did he agree to do his first interviews. February 7, 1976, Travis and Duane both took polygraphs now and both passed. By this point, the story was an international sensation, a story that most didn't seem to believe. The whole crew were accused of being con men. Steve Pierce said they couldn't walk through town without getting a bunch of dirty looks. John Gallette actually moved and left town over the backlash. Hmm. Philip Klass wrote about the case in his book, UFOs the Public Deceived. He wrote that some members of Travis's family were obsessed with UFOs, had often talked about being abducted before Travis's disappearance. People in Snowflake were confused when no one in Travis's family seemed very upset that he vanished. Travis's older brother, Dwayne, even said that he was probably lost in space while he was gone. According to Class, Walton's boss, Mike Rogers, was behind schedule on his logging contract and wanted to use the UFO incident as a way to get out of it. But Travis claimed that the work was 80% complete when he disappeared, and they were on pace to finish it on time. Also, that another crew had to go in and finish the job when he disappeared, and they lost their money. So it made no sense for them to try and get out of it. Mike Rogers called Class's theory, quote, bullshit. There are several pieces of evidence that support Travis's story, mainly his physical condition when he was found. He'd lost 10 pounds, was severely dehydrated, and his clothing was disheveled. Apro doctors found no ketones in his urine, which means his body didn't start using his fat stores for fuel. Somehow, Travis got enough nutrients in his system to survive five days in the forest with no food, clean water, or camping gear. Apro also found evidence of increased UFO activity in Arizona in the fall of 75. Additionally, six witnesses all gave the same story and all passed a polygraph. Dr. Harder told Travis that the polygraph evidence would have been enough to get a person convicted of murder in a different case. Could this actually have happened? In 2014, Ben Hansen, a documentary producer and UFO researcher, met Travis at the site to talk about the abduction. They found tree stumps from 1975, based on tree rings, and saw that the rings on the side facing the clearing were spaced out further, meaning there was more growth on just that side that year. All the trees in that area were growing more on the side that allegedly faced the mysterious aircraft. Did radiation affect the trees and cause this mutation? Hansen referenced nature studies from post-Chernobyl. The studies found that the trees grew more after the Chernobyl incident than other periods in history. They also collected soil samples and sent them to an independent lab in Ohio. Testing found a higher concentration of iron and other ferrous material than control samples from soil further away in the same area. 
Ferrous materials may indicate that something with a large magnetic field was pulling particles up from the ground. Alan Dallas passed away in 2010. Dwayne Smith passed away in 2018. Today, the surviving crew members are disappointed that those other two men didn't live long enough to see how many people believe their story now. In 2022, Travis told Discovery Channel producers, aliens exist. We're not alone in the universe. I think people need to realize that that is a reality here. Every one of the crewmen has stood by the story of what happened throughout their lives. Some of them are no longer with us. They've had the courage to stand up to the naysayers, and they endured that from the beginning, even before I was returned. Other living witnesses also recently addressed skeptics. John said, it's always going to be there. Sometimes it bothers me a lot, you know, but it did happen. Why did it happen? Why was it us? Mike said, for everybody, uh, for everybody was affected differently. It greatly affected my life, but for the better, I think. And finally, Steve said, I lived it and it's still hard to believe. I've been called a liar so many times. I'm just used to it now, I guess. It doesn't really bother me. If you believe it, you believe it. If you don't, you don't. It was real. It was real that day. Was Travis Walton truly abducted and experimented on for five days in 1975? Why? What did they want? And why haven't they been back? Or have they? Or are they coming back any day now? Maybe looking for you this time. Maybe looking for me. No, they're not looking for me. They don't like sassy girls. <laughs> it's going to be my defense mechanism. I'll just sass them. I got a, I got a few pictures if you want before questions on this yeah, one. Okay. okay. Um, this first one, old DVD cover artwork for the movie based on Travis's claims, Fire in the Sky. Oh, I think I do remember that. When did it come out? 1993. Okay. I was 10. Seems familiar. Yeah, it's kind of an iconic movie poster kind of image too. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's all I really recognize. Our friend actually that you love, Doug Mellard. Yeah. This story freaked him out. Like he still is scared. It messed him up when he saw it as a kid and he's never quite gotten over it. Because aliens are terrifying. <laughs> uh, another picture. This is Travis Walton, circa 1975, year of the abduction. Hey, he's cute. Yeah. He's got his big chainsaw and his hard hat there. Uh I love that. I love that you can find a picture. Chainsaw? It was uh, beneath him oh, on the ground. Like, his, uh, you can find a picture of my dad looking almost identical to that the same same year. And you look like your dad, and I think you're hot. Well, that's so. nice. Uh, here's Travis in 2019. So more recent photo. Ooh, well, he's a little older. Well, Quite a bit older. Maybe it's time to get rid of the stash. <laughs> it's a signature stash. Uh, and then this uh, last picture. Uh, what some of the aliens who examined Travis may have looked like based on his depiction. I mean, those I, eyes. I don't know where we get this idea that that's what aliens look like, but that is always what I think. I mean, I, yeah. I, I don't know if it's just like a, we've absorbed this from mm -hmm. movie posters and TV shows and blah, blah, blah. But I always think of that grayish, mm -hmm. marshmallowy. I thought that was a great description. Yeah. So sorry. We had lunch uh, about... Yeah, it's messing you up over there, Ooh! I noticed. Well, because uh, we had Greek food and the mm -hmm. garlic is I am... Mm. Burps McGee. Oh, Burpee. I know. Oh, I hate a Burpee. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe um, maybe like me telling one more story will give you some time to like digest further. And, well, I feel like talking would help because then I would be getting air out. Okay, get some air out. <laughs> That's nonsense. You have to take the air. <laughs> you have to take air in in order yeah. to talk. Well, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, okay. This is such a random note, but mm -hmm. it's so. It's so wild, cool, and interesting that in every like sci-fi movie, yeah, they really um, go hard on the no zippers, no buttons. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No Just, snaps. Like mm -hmm. it's such a. I'm like, how do you think these people get dressed? Magic. But why is that? Is such an uber specific thing to the sci-fi genre. I worked mm -hmm. on enough like sci-fi stuff, and then just watching those movies, it's like, 
Why are we pretending like they don't have these things? They have it's so it's just so well done. They've had so many more centuries to refine it, or they're uh-huh. so advanced that you just can't see them. Oh, it's just like invisible seams. Okay, okay. Well, while you were telling this story, there was a very bizarre shadow that happened over here hmm. uh, behind that camera, where I just like I got really hyper focused on it for several minutes, and then I blinked really hard, yeah. and it felt like I I felt like I missed like an hour of time. It was the weirdest feeling. I'm like, what just happened right now? <laughs> yeah. I know. I was like, oh, oh, the aliens are here. <laughs> They've got me. Uh, if I was abducted by aliens yeah. and I was talking to them, trying to ask them where I was and they didn't talk to me, that alone would make me go insane. Yeah. They just stared at you quietly. Mm-hmm. Probably because their voices maybe don't match up. Maybe they don't have voices. Maybe they don't have voices. Maybe they communicate telepathically. Be-doo, be-doo. Maybe they do that. That's what I think. I think, uh, yeah, and I thought that it made so much sense that they that the investigator started to think that Travis's friends killed him. I mean, that mm-hmm. wouldn't that be the natural thing? And then he's back from yeah, the th- dead. If these guys are all saying like, "Oh, yeah, aliens got him," oh. they're like, "Huh, so interesting." So you guys were the last people to see him alive, and mm-hmm. aliens got him. Okay, I know. Mm-hmm. Good luck telling that to cops. Oh my god, I don't, I don't know where my wife is. I feel like aliens maybe got her. Hmm. No way. <laughs> True. Uh, last thing, kind of a bizarre thing that like his whole family was into this. I know. Alien thing, that is the only thread of like, meh, 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 meh. And I go back and forth with that one because you can take it, like I said, one of two ways. Yeah. You can take it like, well, yeah, you guys just, you know, planned this. You wanted so badly to be known for seeing aliens because you wanted to see aliens so, you know, so bad. Right. You wanted it to be yeah, real. You wanted it to be real. You decided to pull off some crazy hoax. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or you can interpret it as... Aliens really were observing this family, which led to his abduction. Or hmm? they just, you know, are weirdos. And they have... It's all coincidence. Right, and they just, like, have this belief. Like, you know, maybe, like, their grandfather was into it. And then it's just some sort of like, family thing that get passed down. It's like, oh, yeah, there he goes again about the aliens. Mm-hmm. And then, but, um, he's gone. <laughs> and that is such a weird reaction when you said that first uh the first time there were two different family members that said like they got him or it's like wow you were like waiting for this mm-hmm. i don't maybe they were kind of hopeful that at some point one of them would get taken because when you believe something that no one else can be- like yeah. the other people don't believe or question you're just waiting for some proof so i bet in some ways they were like ha ha mm-hmm. we were right yep yeah so cool yeah very very documented i mean again there's lots of skeptics but i mean i mean i would say i mean i i can't think since, uh, you know, there was in the late 40s and the 50s, there was an explosion of, uh, you know, UFO incidents. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of quieted down. But since, you know, like out of uh, 1975, since this happened to the present, I can't yeah. think of a more documented supposed alien abduction claim. I mean, there is one that you haven't talked about yet on the show. Mine? Mm-hmm. I'll talk. I'm not ready yet. Okay. To get my story together. All right. <laughs> I have to add details. Okay. Uh, are you Is ready? That, maybe that's where your brother went. <laughs> oh, yeah. Richard Bartholomew Cones. Mm-hmm. Dickie, oh, Dickie B. B. R.I.P. Dickie B. Uh, R.D. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> are you ready to leave an interesting alien abduction story? Uh, I've known about forever that, honestly, again, I'm surprised it took us as long to tell and moved to a curse story that Sophie found. Oh, Sophie. That I cannot believe I had never heard of. Okay. Before we get into a short, unsettling story that I predict is going to linger with you for uh, quite a while, we're going to take a quick in-between story sponsor break. Please take advantage of these sponsor deals. Use our codes and landing pages so you save money. Also help us keep getting sponsored. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to those sponsor deals, creeps and peepers. Take advantage of them. 
Okay, a little bit of setup. Okay, I just sorry before you dive in because my mm-hmm. brain won't let it go. Mm-hmm. You said you'd you'd hurt. You knew this story. It was well documented. You forgot about it. Then Sophie found it, and then you said I oh, never no. heard of it. I'm no. confused. No, what I what I meant to say, if I didn't say it correctly, was I had heard of the Travis Walton abduction story a bunch. Got Can't it. believe we didn't do it. Then Sophie found another story that is also well-documented at the time that I'd never heard of. Gotcha. Okay, sorry. I got a little twisted in my head, and there was no way I was going to be able to focus on the story because the whole time I'd be like, does he know it or does he not know it? Is he lying to me or not? No, never heard the story before this... uh, before this a couple days ago. Okay, okay. Tell me, tell me, tell me. So yeah, so yeah. Tiny bit of setup and a tiny little story here. Okay, tiny, we tiny. Uh, we once talked about someone on this podcast who might have died from fright. Been a little while. The strange tale of the troubling death of Cindy James. Cindy may have literally been scared to death. Uh, and Christopher Case, in the following story, may have been as well. But the buildup to his death wasn't seven years long like it was with Cindy. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to involve much more evidence of paranormal torment. Officially, Chris died of heart failure but I don't know. This one is chill-inducing. Could a strange curse actually have been responsible for his death? Chris was terrified the last week of his life. He tried so desperately to avoid the fate a strange woman had told him was going to be his. Somehow, this woman he saw only once would, in the end, be impossibly right. Time now for the tale of Christopher Case's death curse. In 1991, Christopher Case was 35 years old and living in Seattle what he considered a better place for a quirky radio broadcaster than Raleigh, North Carolina, where he'd moved from. Sounds right. He'd grown up in Richmond, Virginia, had been looking for a change before he headed west, and Seattle would present him with that change, along with an opportunity in the form of a job at Muzak Holdings. He would wish later that he had simply stayed on the eastern seaboard. On April 11th, 1991, Christopher traveled to San Francisco for a work conference. And like so many of us do when we're in a new city with a couple of free hours to kill, he decided to go out on the town. While out and about, Christopher, who was single, met a woman that he immediately connected with. He belonged interested in ancient music, randomly, and this woman was too. They talked for hours, and then eventually, this woman asked if Christopher wanted to go home with her. Mmm, spicy. Needing to get up early for work the next day, he declined. Something he would regret massively in the days to come, because this woman did not take his rejection well at all. Immediately, her entire persona seemed to shift from a happy, fun-loving, attractive lady to something ugly and sinister. With a grin, she now told him in all seriousness that she was a witch and that she was going to curse him. She told him he would be dead within a week. And then just like that, she walked away and disappeared. Shaken, Christopher returned to Seattle the next day. He didn't know why the encounter had thrown him off. He didn't even believe in witchcraft or the occult and knew there were a lot of people who were just a little bit loony in the world. People who said crazy things, it didn't actually mean anything. But something about the woman's words resonated with him far more than he thought they should. Maybe it was a strange, intense look in her eyes when she'd cursed him, like she was seeing right past him and into his soul, or like she was already looking at his grave and laughing with satisfaction. Trying to make himself feel better, Christopher called some friends, asked for their thoughts. One friend, Sammy Soder, was a practicing psychic. A few days after returning from San Francisco, Christopher begged her for help. The night before, April 14th, three days after being cursed, he swore he'd heard strange footsteps and creepy whispers in his apartment when no one else was supposed to be there, and he was starting to freak out. When Sammy tried to get a sense of what Christopher's future held, all she saw was a wall of molten black, and then she saw a hand slowly emerge from the wall of blackness as if to pull Sammy through it. (sighs) Sammy did not tell Christopher about this vision, 
She didn't want to freak him out further, and she hoped that her vision was wrong, maybe just a product of Christopher's fear. She would later wish she had warned him, although she wouldn't have even known what exactly to warn him of. How do you warn someone that something is after them when you don't even know what that something is? Two days later, five days after being cursed, April 16th, Christopher called another friend with strange reports of paranormal activity. He was more terrified than ever. Now he wasn't even sounding like himself. His voice was ragged. He kept trailing off when he talked, occasionally getting startled, losing his train of thought like something was in the room with him. He did not sound well at all. Took almost a half hour before he could get out the full story, how he'd been attacked the night before when he was sleeping. He said that invisible hands had tried to suffocate him. Oh my God. And that when he'd woken up, there was cuts on his fingers and bloodstains on his bed sheets, but nothing sharp anywhere near his bed. That morning, he went to a religious bookstore, picked a handful of crucifixes. First time he'd ever done anything like that. He hoped, uh, you know, that they would help. He was willing to try anything. He was desperate. The store manager threw in some books about demonic influence, sensing that something about Christopher was just off and that he needed help. Sadly, Christopher's efforts to protect himself would not work. Whatever was following him or had been placed upon him, it was just too strong. On the night of April 16th, he left his apartment for a hotel. He was too afraid to stay there now. The next morning, April 17th, six days out, after Christopher had been told he was dying within the week, his friend Sammy Soder switched on her answering machine. They almost got me. She heard Christopher mutter in a ragged voice, It's my last day on earth. He told her he was returning to his apartment now. The hotel wasn't any more safe. Sammy wanted to help him, protect him, but how? She hoped this was all nothing more than hysteria, that the rejected lady in San Francisco had just really done a number on him, and he'd be better once the week had passed. The next day, April 18th, 1991, exactly a week after Christopher's strange encounter, a friend of his back in North Carolina called Seattle authorities for a wellness check. She had not been able to get a hold of him. She was worried. When police entered his apartment, they were shocked at what they'd find. They found lines of salt along the perimeter of each room, as well as several crucifixes and about a dozen burned down candles. And then they found Christopher Case dead in the bathtub. His official cause of death would be a heart attack. But many think it was no ordinary heart attack. Christopher was incredibly fit, a health nut. He took great care of himself, had no medical conditions, no family history of heart disease. And, well, there was the whole curse. There was his deteriorating physical, mental, spiritual health ever since the place curse had been placed upon him. Was his death really a freak accident? The result of him just getting way too into his own head about something random that some person had said? Or was it something much darker? We'll likely never know. Either way, it seems, through either paranormal or psychological means, a witch's curse ended Christopher Case's life, and he literally died scared to death. Holy shit. Oh, boy. Isn't that a creepy story? That is so uncomfortable. Like, what the heck? Man. First of all, I wish that I would have thought to curse more people who rejected me. <laughs> that that would be fun. But this story that the, I just am so uh, so creeped out by, he's telling people, like, I hear whispering. Yeah, I yeah, I hear yeah. these weird things or something in the apartment. And then he has that crazy nightmare where it's like hands around his neck. I know, I know. Combined with that wall of blackness That's what that I was lady thinking. saw and the hands coming out of it. that would make it. sense, like, if you were on a bed up through the bed. Man, look at the goosebumps I have. I know, I see that. I see that. That is crazy. And then he goes to the hotel, trying to get away from it. You know, comes he's leaving these weird, frantic messages. I know. Something's after him. Okay, you know, he, there's things around him. Uh, okay, what would you do? Like if that? Fuck. Okay, you're you are in a you're single. You don't know me yet. I get it. Yeah. You're searching for me everywhere. Yeah. You're in a bar. You're single. You hit whatever wherever you are. You meet this woman. 
You say, nah, sorry, not tonight. She curses you. You have seven days. What is your next move? Well, at first, probably like him, because it doesn't say anything about the first couple of days. True. At first, I'd have been like, get the fuck out of here. Right. You know, maybe unsettled, but like, whatever. But once I heard like whisperings and things, uh-huh. definitely, if not by that point, definitely by the point I had that insane dream and woke up with scratches. Mm-hmm. I am running to, I'm I'm going every outlet. I'm taking the day off work. I'm taking the rest of the week off work. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to a priest, a pastor, a spiritualist, tarot, like whoever. I'm talking to everybody. I'm doing crazy research. I'm going to the bookstores like he did. Uh-huh, uh-huh. What happens to get rid of a curse? I'm reaching out frantically because now there's a ticking clock in my mind mm-hmm. to everyone. And I would want some, I don't know. It would be so terrifying because part of me would be like, okay, my first instinct was like, I want somebody to be with me. That's what I was thinking. But then I would think, but is that person then going to fucking kill me? Maybe it's better oh. for me to be totally alone. I would want to be mm. totally alone, not buy anything. But then I might start having paranoid thoughts of like, well, then what if someone comes in and now I die because I can't defend myself because I have nothing. Mm. I mean, I would lose my shit. Once I had the uh, whispering mm-hmm. and once I had the dream, mm-hmm. I would be, and if there was more stuff, I mean, there was uh, allusions to more things happening, paranormal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <sighs> I mean... I would, I would honestly almost want to check myself into a psychiatric center. I had that thought as well. Give me a 72-hour hold. But that doesn't mean that you can't die. I know, but at least there's medical professionals kind of watching me. Kind of. I mean, they're not like mon- they're not like eyes on you 24 yeah. hours a day, seven days a week, unless you are truly a harm to yourself. But that's the point of being on a hold, is that you are held in a space where there is nothing that can hurt you. But okay. no one's like watching you on a monitor nonstop. If at least I'm- that's... My my experience. If I make it to the seventh day, yeah, I would want. I wouldn't want to take anything new for the first time. But if there was some kind of mild sedatives, because I wouldn't want anything too too intense mm-hmm. to risk, like you know, uh, dying from some kind of overdose. Mm-hmm. I would almost want to be like tied up and have the person I trust the most watch me until the week runs out. So that, I, that so feels I crazy. I can't move. I can't hurt myself. Okay, okay. It's but, the person I trust the most not to hurt me. Okay, but Christopher, but. Died of a heart attack. I know. You can't stop that. I know. You can't stop that. But to eliminate other things. And obviously the big question here is, I mean, there's crazy. There's a bunch of newspaper articles from the, you know, 91 about this. Um, I mean, the two things in my mind that I think uh, happened here. Mm-hmm. One, obviously the paranormal extreme explanation that she fucking cursed him mm-hmm. and did something to, and it worked. The other one is. She got him to freak out so much mm-hmm. that his imagination did start going crazy. He started thinking he was hearing things. He's losing his shit, mm-hmm. and and he gets so scared that he gives himself a fucking heart attack. Is that medically possible? I don't know, actually. Okay, because my assumption is that because he was in the bathroom, mm-hmm. that he saw something in the mirror. <sighs> yeah, man. It's like... It reminds me of like The Ring or some of those like horror movies where mm-hmm. it's like people just get found dead and they look like, but oh my God. I this just, story freaks me out. I just think like he probably, if he's living in an apartment, like I don't know why I decided that this is how his apartment looks, but yeah. it's like you, or how his apartment bathroom looks, I should say. You walk in the bathroom door, immediately on your left is the tub shower combo. Just past that is the toilet. And when you sit down on the toilet, you're staring at yourself in the mirror and there's the sink. And so what I imagine oh, fuck that. is that he went to the bathroom and either was like, urinating or having a bowel movement but like mm. one way or the other he like he either turns around and faces the mirror or he gets up while facing the mirror washing his hands something in the mirror stumbles backwards heart attack falls into the tub dead i don't know maybe even hit his head well they, well, no, they, they would have found, that. They found that in the autopsy yes he might have just had a heart attack and fell over into the tub or if, or maybe yeah if he, <laughs> 
I had to. Sorry, yeah. Lindsay. You know how they hide from <laughs> giant storms in bathtubs? Oh, what if yeah. It was like, what if that was just this one thing he had? His brain last second was like, I need to hide in the bathtub. That would be the only place to keep me safe. Oh, my God. Like it was that big of a monster type situation. <sighs> Thanks for Yikes. Thanks for making sure I was awake. You're welcome. Man, I'm rethinking it now. Now I wish I would, I would want to be around a few people. Because the odds that like, uh, okay, let's say you're around one person. Yeah. And then what if they snap and kill you? But if you're around a few people, mm. the odds that they would all decide to get together to try and kill you are so small, you know, that they would all like kind of collaborate that way. And you have multiple people watching you. What I wouldn't want to be is alone like him. I know, I know. But maybe he was thinking oh that like God. paranoid thought, or maybe he was thinking yeah. that he didn't want something to overtake him and cause him to kill someone. Oh, geez. Yeah. So many things. Yeah, the story gave me the most chills a story has given me in a while. It really kind of it's got in my head. I've never been cursed. Have you ever been cursed? Not that I'm aware of. Um, well, I mean, I think you would Not know. face-to-face like that. Yeah. I curse you. Yeah, 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 yeah. I have a couple pictures. Oh, okay, sorry. This first one is the only picture I could find uh, that seems to be out there. Every article seems to use it when they're talking about this recently of Christopher Case. Okay. Um, it's not the best resolution, but that's uh, the pick. And this next one- He's I, also sitting in like a weird way. I know. He looks like claymation. I don't know if this witch is the witch who cursed Christopher, but this pick came up turned, during an innocent search for witches. Huh. So it might be the same witch or it might be a different witch. I mean, I, I don't know. the thing about her is that like, if that is her, <laughs> Christopher really has a what strong was, will to say no. You know what I mean? That's true. What was he doing being like, oh, I got to get up early for work? I know. I mean, there are a few things to lose sleep over and <laughs> she might be one of them. Okay. Good job. Well played. Okay. <laughs> 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 Thank you for bringing that levity to this. I know. It really did. Okay, my arms have calmed down now. Listen, here's what I have to tell you. I know that you are going to be on the road here soon, and I'm just going to say, like, whatever you do. Oh. What? I thought you looked at my armpit like I just got seen. <laughs> no, you do, but I oh. I wasn't, that wasn't my intention. Yeah. Um, just don't be alone with anybody having a conversation, especially not anyone who might be flirting with you. I don't do that. I didn't say you did, but I'm yeah. just saying, like, sometimes... Be careful. You can't help it. Like, you go out to lunch, and the waiter or waitress finds you attractive, and they're flirting with you, and when you go to shut them down because ding, 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 ring, 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 that's a, you might that's, get cursed. Maybe that's a better out, though. It's like, but, hey, you're... Mm. Maybe maybe I could say stuff to them like, oh, I totally would, mm. but I'm married. I could go into lots of detail. People people maybe, cheat all the time. Maybe, But maybe I could just be like, I would, and I could list all the things that we might do, but I'm not because uh-huh. I'm married. Mm, like really give some graphic detail. <laughs> that might know. work. That might work. I that mean, would, that wouldn't make things weird. No, not at all. That, yeah. would, that wouldn't be. Just leave a really large tip. There you go. Buy them off. Mm-hmm. Like, Buy them off. Thank you, but no uh, thank you. With curse your, prevention money. Here's the thing. I'm married, and she's also a witch. I can, exactly. She that, would know. I can say that you're a witch. You're a powerful mm-hmm. witch, mm-hmm. and that you'll curse whoever curses me. Oh boy! Now, now you're cooking with gas, <laughs> fire, whatever it is. We got it. <laughs> Who's your squishy this week? He he's this little guy right here. Okay, he's my favorite. Mm-hmm. I love the black Layla. Mm-hmm. I like um. Does oh yeah. Smell? Okay. Uh, he smells good. He does smell good. Is he a he fresh did, one? He is. Yeah, he smells good. He doesn't have quite the same smell as the as the brown Layla. Mm, what does purple Layla smell like? I don't know that purple Layla has a strong scent. I don't oh, know. Okay. But I, but this is this is good. This is good. I love black Layla. It's the cutest to me. That's yeah, good. Good um, color scheme mm-hmm. with a little red heart. Mm-hmm. 
kind of voodoo-esque. Yeah, yeah. All right, are you ready for also another weird story? Mm -hmm. It's that same kind of um, overtone of like, can't prove that it's paranormal, but it sure feels like it's paranormal. Okay. You know what I mean? Yep. I'm so sorry about my burbs, you guys. It's okay. Never, I guess we're not having Greek food before recording ever again. Yeah, I feel fine. It really hammered you. Yeah, I don't know. Too much garlic. Also, I've been a little bit off this week, so. Yeah. (sighs) Who knows? It's always got to be something, doesn't it? Oh, my gosh. Well, anyways, this story is wild, cool, and interesting. Okay, good. Mostly, it's weird. Checks all the boxes. And bizarre and just slightly uncomfortable. Like, I just... I don't know. It, it, it almost has even like a small element of like true crime kind of feeling. Hmm, like okay. it's, it is really, 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 really good. Um, but the the more that I, I read the story a few times, that you know, prepare for it. And it kind of has me like leaning into this idea of that like the paranormal may cause us to do things without us even realizing it's causing us to. Like we explored that in a story recently that I told about a guy who moved to Wyoming and like had purchased a gun and was doing all these things that were very much unlike him, but he Mm -hmm. never complained about like ghosts or sounds or feeling possessed or anything Mm -hmm. like, but like what some, what if sometimes it's so subtle that, that we as the person being affected or afflicted don't even notice it. Yep. It's just like, huh, Dan's being so weird lately. But oh like, God. but then these, it passes. These stories get in my head. And sometimes I have that thought. Mm-hmm. If I'm like, like in a darker mood. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm like, am I in a darker mood? <laughs> because it's just like natural moodiness or does something have me? Does so, something. something, you know. And, in, and in then what do you bit. do? How do you get it out of you? Hmm, I don't know. I usually forget about it. <laughs> Okay. Okay. All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, This will be an anonymous story as the person telling the story feels that it is in their best interest and safety to be kept anonymous. Okay. In grade school, I befriended a kid that was seen as eccentric in a way that made him mostly liked by his fellow students. He dressed in all black, listened to alternative music, and made a point more or less to make himself seem like an outsider and different. Kids at school were all kind of amused by him, and other than laughing good-naturedly with him, they didn't really pay him much attention. I got along with this guy really well through grade school, even going to his house a few times after school to hang out. I likely got along with him due to the fact that I was extremely introverted myself and never hung out with any particular group of kids, especially the outgoing or popular ones. His parents were upper-class professionals, and while I don't remember his dad ever being home when I visited his house a few times, I did have occasion to speak to his mom frequently. She was always really nice and welcoming. She was a very intelligent person and seemed very much into the arts and culture, which always made for an interesting conversation for kids our age. In high school, we never had a falling out, we just simply went our own separate ways. We would run with different groups of friends, and the last time I had any contact with him was uh, right before graduating in the eighth grade. Although we did run into each other in high school, it was usually nothing more than the occasional wave in the hallway. Upon graduation, I went on to a state university, and he went on to join the military. For the next three years, I never heard from this guy, and honestly, I never thought about him at all, until very much out of the blue, I received a call from him one day when I was home from school for a week during one of the breaks. He told me he was on a short leave from the military, would be in town for the same time frame as I was, and he seemed very upbeat and talkative, which was a bit unusual for this subdued, more quiet personality that I had remembered, but I attributed it to him growing up and maturing. 
While catching up, he told me that his mom and dad had unfortunately gotten a divorce a few years ago and his mother had moved to Europe. He said that she also came home to see him and was, quote, apartment sitting for a friend of hers that lived in town but was current that was currently away on business. He asked if I'd like to hang out with him that night and then asked if I would like to stop in and say hello to his mother. I agreed to go out with him that night. He picked me up and the evening started out just fine. We grabbed a bite to eat and he filled me in on what life was like in the military. I filled him in on how I was handling college life. We hit it off extremely well and there was absolutely nothing amiss at all during the first hour or so of our evening. After dinner, we drove around for a while, again, continuing lightheartedly catching up, gossiping about the people we had gone to school with, local things, and so on. He then asked again if I'd like to say hello to his mother, and I readily agreed, as I remember her being so nice to me in grade school. I was interested to see how she had been and was particularly interested to hear how she had ended up in Europe. We drove, ab- we drove around a bit more and then ended up at an apartment complex where his mom was staying. The door to the apartment opened up into the living room area. It was a typical layout of most apartments with a main living area and a small kitchen as the only areas immediately visible when you first step inside. His mother greeted us at the door and was as I remembered her. She greeted me with a hug, asked how I'd been, and seemingly was genuine and seemingly was genuinely happy to see me. After the initial greeting, I had a chance to glance around the room and notice a very odd setup. The room was filled with dozens of stuffed animals. I'm not talking about taxidermy animals, but small, cute, stuffed toys that children play with. The animals weren't in a big pile in the corner of the room, haphazardly strewn about like a child might have left them, but they seemed to be individually and deliberately placed throughout the entire area. It was Mm. definitely odd, but I tried to come up with a rational reason why the animals were arranged like this. While I was glancing around, I began to realize that this wasn't the first time I had seen some of these stuffed animals. There were a few that I had recognized as being in my friend's house from when I went there over 10 years ago. That meant, obviously, that at least some of these stuffed animals belonged to him. Again, my mind was trying to rationalize the weirdness, so I thought that maybe his mom came home and was getting rid of some old things of hers to take to Goodwill or something like that. My friend's mom asked me to sit down on the couch so we could talk and catch up, and so I did as she asked. I had to move a few of the stuffed animals out of the way to make room to sit, and as I did, I watched as my friend sat on the floor. Again, there were animals everywhere, on the floor, the couch, and all of the chairs. I thought it a bit odd that he sat on the floor, as when he sat there with his legs crisscrossed, he was holding one of the stuffed animals in his lap. I think your mind constantly attempts to make irrational situations rational, but I was trying to figure this out. I kept waiting for my friend or his mom to tell me why the animals were there. They had to know it looked so odd, and I was assuming they were going to volunteer the information, but they never did. In fact, it just kept getting weirder. After my friend sat down with the stuffed animal in his lap, his mom got up, went to the kitchen, returned with a box of Teddy Grahams. She then asked if I wanted to feed the animals. What? My attempt at rationalizing this was that they were now playing a joke on me and would soon start laughing and telling me they were just screwing with me. But unfortunately, that never happened. My friend's mom started walking around the room and placing a single teddy gram in front of each of the stuffed animals in the room. She then sat down in her chair, picking up her stuffed animal, 
put the Teddy Graham to the mouth of the stuffed animal and began making little eating noises or chewing noises like... Oh I didn't God. even know how to describe this in writing. It's the noise you would make when you're playing with a three-year-old pretending to be eating with your stuffed animal or something. I then looked at my friend on, sitting on the floor, and he was doing the exact same thing with his stuffed animal. And to add to the extreme oddness, he was rocking back and forth eerily as he was doing this. And then, as if it wasn't over-the-top weird enough, he started to talk to his mom in a creepy little kid voice. They went back and forth about the animals and how much fun it was to feed them. Remember, this is a grown man in the military. I soon came to the realization that they were not playing a joke on me. They were legitimately, with all seriousness, sitting in a room full of stuffed animals, feeding each one individually and asking me to join in. At this point, I went from trying to figure out what the hell was going on to trying to figure out how I was getting out of there. Yes. This was my predicament. I was very shy and a rather introverted kid growing up. And as a result, I didn't run around town a lot. So honestly, I didn't know my way around that well. Well, I didn't live in a huge city. It was approximately 150,000 people. So it wasn't a tiny town either. I tell you this because I had absolutely no idea where I was or how to drive home if I had a car. The problem was, I didn't have a car. He had picked me up. In addition, I couldn't just run out and call my parents to pick me up because cell phones didn't yet exist. As I sat there, I quickly rationalized that if these people really were as batshit crazy as they appeared, I was probably safest playing along and not drawing negative attention. I had to fake it to where I could get this guy to drive me home or at least to a public place where I could phone for help. So in spite of being totally embarrassed to admit this, yes, I fed the damn Teddy Grahams to the stuffed (laughs) animal. No, I didn't make the chewy noises, but I did play along enough to ensure that they didn't suspect I knew that they were both crazy. I still hadn't decided if they were harmlessly crazy or more than that. I hoped it was harmless. Fortunately, the night ended with no drama. We fed the whole slew of animals and it started to get late. So my friend asked me if I was ready to go home. It was odd. My friend and his mom both seemed to snap out of it and started talking normal again. She told me that she'd be flying back to Europe in a few days and wished me well in school. My friend took me home that night, and I quickly said goodnight and went into my parents' house. Once I got in and locked the door behind me, I felt a rush of emotion that was a mix of relief, a bit of fear, and a lot of internally laughing my ass off because I couldn't believe what had just happened. (laughs) Everyone in my house was asleep, so I went to bed and had a really bizarre story to tell my parents in the morning. The next day, I told my parents and siblings, I was really relieved that I was going back to school in a few days and was comforted knowing that my friend, although at this point I would better label this person as the weird guy from my past, would be going back to the military base where he was stationed. I would love to say that that was the end of the story, but it only gets weirder. (laughs) I got a call from this guy the next day. The initial part of the conversation was him just telling me it was great to catch up and that it was nice seeing me again. I politely said the same thing and wished him well. He then asked if I would consider moving to Europe with him. Just like that, out of the blue, one evening, hanging out, feeding his stuffed animals, (laughs) and the very next day asks me if I'd consider moving out of the country with him. He further made the statement, quote, My mom said you were one of the best ones I ever brought home. What? I sat completely stunned for a few seconds. It was the weirdest thing I'd ever experienced, and I wasn't sure what to say. I told him I did not want to move to Europe at all. And then I loved school and definitely intended to finish college. So my no was firm. Where I went wrong was in the follow-up. His next question was if I minded if he wrote to me on occasion. I told him that would be okay. 
I can hear the collective groaning and criticism from the people who may hear this story. But I want to emphasize that at the time, I was very young, very shy, with no real life experience. My today self would have told that guy he was completely crazy and to never call again. My very young self was thinking, just let the guy write a letter. We'll go our separate ways. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'll end up with a funny story to tell my friends. No harm, no foul. Unfortunately, it didn't end quite that easily. I returned to school, and other than having a fascinating story to tell my roommates, everything went back to normal. Two or three weeks later, I got a letter in the mail. At one glance, it was evidence that the letter was from a military uh, was from the military because of the return address on it. With a little trepidation, because honestly, I was hoping he'd forget about writing to me and go away, I opened the letter. It was three pages long and handwritten cursive. It was neatly written, very lighthearted. Just talked about the fact that he'd enjoyed seeing me again, thanked me for taking time to go out with him and to catch up with him. He ended the letter by telling me he would love to get a letter from me. I shared this with my two roommates, and all three of us were of the very strong opinion that under no circumstances should I write this guy back. That would encourage him, which was the last thing I wanted to do. The plan was to ignore the letter, and then he would get the hint, stop writing, and he'd go on with Mm -hmm. his life. Two weeks later, I received another letter from him. Again, lighthearted with no serious content and again he ended it by asking me to write back and again I did not and then another week goes by and another letter shows up and this time there was no lighthearted discussion or banter this time the content was that he really wanted to continue communicating with me and he just wanted me to write back and again thinking if I didn't he would just give up and go away I did not write back I then began getting a series of letters from him I won't take the time to summarize them each individually but there was a progression in the frequency and the angry tone of the subsequent oh, letters. Boy. It started out as getting a letter once a week, then it moved to two letters a week, then three, all the way up to getting a letter from him every single day. Oh my God. As the number of letters increased, the tone and writing style changed significantly. He went from lighthearted to needy to stern to angry. The weirdest thing was that he got angrier about the fact that I wasn't writing him back. He switched from writing in first person to writing in third person. He began to refer to himself by his first name and said, Matthew was angry. You haven't written to him. Oh, my God. In the height of his anger, he began to imply that he was learning to use explosives in the military and that he would know how to send me a bomb if he wanted to. The handwriting also became less neat. It appeared as if he wrote the letters in more of a rush or with more anger. I wasn't sure what to do. I didn't want to contact the military or go to the police. I knew where he was stationed and it was in a different state, so I did feel somewhat protected, but obviously aware he could go AWOL and get to me if he wanted to. Looking back, yes, I certainly could have handled things differently, but again, I was young, with limited life experience. I just kept the letters and told my roommates not to touch any packages that might be delivered. Jesus Christ. I didn't tell my parents about the letters initially because I didn't want them to worry. However, when I went home for Thanksgiving break, I shared with them what was going on. My mother was very worried and my dad was outraged. Yeah. Needless to say, this caused a little bit of drama over Thanksgiving, but overall it was a good visit and I loved coming home from school and seeing my family and getting good food for a change. After initially sharing with them what had occurred, it wasn't brought up again for the few days I was there. Thanksgiving day was as good as it always was. I got up early with, to help my mom with the meal and we had a great day of cooking and laughing with my brothers and sisters and we sat down to a huge fantastic meal that my mom always made. We had just sat down to dig into the feast when the phone rang. Back when this occurred, caller ID did not exist, so when the phone rang, you simply answered it to find out who was calling. When the phone rang, we all briefly looked at each other because it was a bit unusual to get a call on that day. Everyone in our immediate family was at the table, but it was certainly possible that an extended family member was calling to wish us a happy Thanksgiving. 
I was sitting closest to the phone, so I got up and answered it. The phone is visible from the dining room table, and my dad was facing it, giving him a direct line of vision to me and the expression on my face. When I answered the phone, it was Matthew at the other end. I didn't say anything other than his name, barely even getting out barely even getting that out when my dad jumped up from the table nearly knocking over his chair he walked over to me literally ripped the phone from my hand put the receiver to his (laughs) mouth and let loose a string of cuss words that were impressive in both meaning and scope (laughs) i won't say exactly what he told matthew but he was very 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 clear on what would occur if matthew ever called or wrote or ever came by or ever tried to contact me at all again He then slammed down the receiver without waiting for any reply, walked back over to the table, sat down, and began to eat dinner. I had a fascinating mix of emotion that somehow blended with being terrified and thankful for my dad at the same time. We all couldn't help but laugh immediately afterwards, possibly because we were nervous, but also by the fact of of the display that was quite funny. It happened so quickly and with such finality that it had a funny tone to it, but we knew my dad wasn't kidding. Perhaps the strangest part of the entirely true story Hmm. is the mundane and anticlimactic end to it. The fact is, I never heard from this guy again. I have absolutely no idea what became of this person. I don't know if he got out of the military or moved to Europe or what happened. I have made no attempt to find out, and he has obviously made no attempt to contact me. And for for that, I am still thankful to my dad. I do find it odd that it ended so easily, though. I feel fortunate and thankful. I don't wish this guy any ill will, but I certainly do not wish to ever meet with him ever again. Ah, man. I do like the dad out crazy to crazy there. I know. Because that sometimes can't work where it's like you can't you can't go mild into a situation. If you're going to go there, in my opinion, you have to go all the way there. I know. Like if someone's harassing, like if someone were harassing one of the kids in a situation like that and I got a chance to talk to him, I'm not going to be like, hey, man, what are you doing? Right. I mean, I think you know the kind of things I would say I to them. I do and, know the kinds and, of crazy things you'd say. And the volume and the in the words I would use. I know. But I would make it really clear to that person that like, you're going to fucking die mm-hmm. if you cross this line, mm-hmm. you know, like that. I will fucking find you. I like that I you're already getting you enra- enraged, even though this is not our child. <laughs> this is not happening. But your like rage fantasy is, is like, ah, is daddy of, bear. It is that thing of how dare you? I How know. dare you keep sending daily and then threatening, talking about bombs? I did have – I wrote down, I'm like, FBI is who you're supposed to go to in a situation like that. If, like, that's, like, um, the scope of it, mm-hmm. I would start there where it's, like, this this person is threatening to send a bomb through the post office, the yeah, mail, which true. is a federal crime, yeah. different things. That's some Unabomber shit. I know. You know? It did, it did definitely, like, have a note of, like, mental illness. But it's just so weird. Yes. Because, go go ahead. I think you have a thought you need to share. Well, the mental illness thing, I did write a note on that too. What's interesting, yes, but what what, what I I understand like why you included this in like a paranormal kind of shit. Because what was weird, the doll thing, okay, if the mom or the son, just one is doing that and the other one is going along with them to Uh placate them, then I could read that as... Paranoid schizophrenia, mm-hmm. probably unmedicated, mm-hmm. you know, likely unmedicated, untreated. And then the other person is just doing their best to kind of like indulge this um, uh, delusion right. for wh- whatever enabling reason, whatever, just like trying to help reason. Mm-hmm. But to have two people in the same – first off, 
there is a genetic component to like specifically paranoid schizophrenia, mm-hmm. where it's like if you have a parent that has it, the odds that you're going to have it are not they're still not great, mm-hmm. but they're more likely mm-hmm. for you to have it than if than if you didn't have a parent that has it. Right. But for two, I have you know come across a litany of stories of people, especially in the true crime world, who either are dealing with paranoid schizophrenia or there's some other character in the story that has it. And mm-hmm. We've looked mm-hmm. into it many times, you know, blah blah blah. But like, I have never heard of two people having it and on top of having it joining in the same uber specific delusion. That's what I was thinking too. And she was married. Mm-hmm. So so why like So is there a third person that feeds the fucking dolls too when like Well, when, no, I don't think that my guess oh. honestly is like this is where I went. I went to some like some dark culty kind of devil sacrifice shit because here's what I was thinking in yeah. high school this kid is just whatever like a quirky kid sounds totally harmless mm-hmm, we hang mm-hmm. out the the person who sends in the story meets the mom never meets the dad but it sounds like the dad is around and yeah. the author of the story doesn't indicate that like well it was weird because I went there and my friend Matthew said that he his dad was around but there were no signs of like another adult like yeah. you would know by just some like kind of basic cues in a house whether there's one parent or two okay so married seemingly happy yeah. normal upper middle class they have you know an eccentric son whatever none of that means anything mm-hmm, they just sound mm-hmm. like an average suburban family flash forward what, what whatever it was 10 years or whatever and now parents are divorced yeah. and mom and child not doing great whatever's going on mm-hmm. and the the comment of my mom said you were one of the good one of the best and ones what, i ever what brought does home that mean and she's living in europe so to me and they're trying to now get this the the sender of the story over to europe i'm like oh you are involved in some weird devil shit you are trying to get this person to move there and you're gonna fucking sacrifice them Yeek. that's where i went possibly i mean what the hell was going on there Right. And and it, and that's yeah. why at the beginning of the story, I said, like, it, there is always this weird thing that, like, when it comes to mental illness, mm-hmm. why? And maybe they do, and I just am unaware of it because I'm not a, psych, a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a therapist yeah. of any sort. But does anybody ever stop to think, or have you recently gotten yourself involved into some witchcraft, some paranormal activity? Like, why does it always have to be like, what's recently changed in your life? What's the new stress level? Like, what's the new stressor? Like, what's the thing that like set you off? It's like, why can't it be something unexplainable? Mm. Well, I mean, I understand why, because those things have not been able to be reproduced in a, a laboratory setting, mm-hmm. which is, and, and until they are, if they ever are, there's always going to be a, a large amount of skepticism and should be. Sure. You know, so it's like that should be um, in a clinical setting, the very, very, very last resort. Yeah. You know, j- just because, I mean, that stuff has been, I, there are that's true there I know are therapists out there who will let their spiritual beliefs intersect with their beliefs and and it's led to a lot no, of bad right. things specifically the satanic panic of the 80s you're right you're right yeah. i didn't think about that and um, actually as you're saying this i like talked to a friend recently yeah. and a, a mutual friend of ours who i no longer keep in touch with had come over to see her and see her new baby and was like, oh yeah, like I'm I'm seeing this great therapist and was like talking about all these things and all of the friends, we've all been like for years, like, gosh, our friend would really benefit from therapy because they have mm. this obvious issue. Mm-hmm. So the the former friend is talking, 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 and then she finally goes, My our mutual friend says, like, oh, so like where is this therapist located? Like kind of like just curious. Like, I don't know, mm-hmm. maybe wants it for herself. And then the former friend is like, well, she's not really a therapist. She's a medium. And I'm like, oh, fuck. that's not like, I'm, it's, there's not the nothing, same. it's not the same. There's nothing yeah. wrong with being a medium. There's nothing wrong with like 
pulling all of your resources to help cope with mm-hmm. something, but they are not that that is not their right their profession. Like they can't diagnose you with anything. They can say you have yeah. it, but it's not a diagnosis. I I'd love to find a, you know, a psychiatrist, psychologist, whatever, who's going to, you know, be very scientifically grounded and based. Mm-hmm. But let's but let's say like uh elements okay. And and I don't have any um, therapist, you know, training. Mm-hmm. But but just speculating, I'm a therapist. Mm-hmm. This person's complaining about these weird occult things to me. Mm-hmm. I would want to, you know, hear how how being involved in these things is affecting them psychologically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, is it pulling you, or, or or why are you seeking out these things? Why are right. you doing these certain things? Is it um, harmless? Is it not harmless? Right. And, and I would follow. And then if as I'm talking to this person about things that are unusual things start coming up and they start mm-hmm. making unusual claims, God, it's like I, I would in an ideal world. You don't want to cross that line. You're not supposed to cross that line and become personally involved on any level with the patient. I understand Correct. that there's that thing. So you wouldn't want to like go to their house and explore this stuff. Mm-hmm. But could you recommend to them that they uh, or maybe recommend a third party to go explore this? And could there be a third party that you trust that's not involved with this person mm-hmm. that once they have explored it can be like, hey. What's going on over there? Right. And hope and hope that that person is like, oh, no, this is mental illness. But mm-hmm. what if that mm-hmm. person then is like, dude, I went over there and I can't explain it. Something's going on. Mm-hmm. Then at that mm-hmm. point, like, is it the right thing to do to recommend to that person you should maybe look into this like an alternative? I don't know. Yeah. It's like because I because I, I do walk that weird line where I'm a, a very much a skeptic and very much like a scientific, you know, like a science based person. Mm-hmm. But also, I'm open to these things. And if you're going to be open to these things, even just a little sliver, then sometimes they can affect people's, you know, lives in ways that could disguise themselves as mental health. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. just got to be really careful right. going down that road. But I don't think there's anything wrong in, in looking down it, you know, and exploring just to just to see what you find. Yeah. Well, just just one thing to wrap that up. Also, Layla doesn't appreciate being smashed in your book. Oh, yeah. She, she is abusing, very uncomfortable I, I there. as a bookmark. She does not care for that. <laughs> um, when, uh, you know, I have my better help therapist, Danielle, mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. I have a therapist I see in person for EMDR therapy. Mm-hmm. And um, my local therapist, she is wicked smart, mm-hmm. very logical. Yep. As soon as I walk in her office, she's got this like little um, stand where she keeps you, whatever, tissues in the clock on the bottom shelf. A Wanda Selenite. It's like, yeah. She's also got like a Buddha hand. She's got like, it's just, it is that thing. But has she ever been like, let's wave the Selenite wand, Mm -hmm. you know, around to clear the energy of you? Like, no, that's not what she's purporting, right? She's like, okay, here's this scientific thing that I do that I can show you works. Mm -hmm. If you, you know, because like the EMDR therapy, like the rapid eye movements, it's really fascinating. And even that's like maybe like on the edge for some people. They're like, yeah, that's not traditional talk therapy. Sure. But never once is she like, okay, let's get the crystals out. I mean, I kind of wish <laughs> right, she would, but right. But like, really, really, I think we all know, really, at the end of the day, that as much as I love a crystal, mm-hmm. I also am not thinking like that. Uh, holding a wand of selenite or a piece of black tourmaline or rose quartz or jasper, I don't actually believe that that one individual thing mm-hmm. is going to cure my anxiety or my depression or, what, God forbid, I'm ever diagnosed with some horrific disease. It is a an additional tool in my toolbox of things that I use to cope with my life. Yeah, like a why not? L- yes, be- and because it makes me feel better. So that makes wh- sense. whether it's placebo or not, mm-hmm. I believe it's not. Mm-hmm. But but I don't think that's the be all end all cure. I, I, I think, think that's like the healthy yep. perspective. Yeah, that's a healthy way to walk in both worlds. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, but that story, man. Woo-wee. I know. A couple stories today that are the lingerers. I know. I like Psychological thrillers this mm-hmm. week. Mm-hmm. I like mm-hmm. it. By the way, you look so handsome today. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I can tell like, uh, yeah, you just look like rested and your face looks a little bit slimmer. I love you at any weight you yeah. are. I love your body in all the ways, but... You know, I was I, when you were telling your story. I was like, "My husband is so hot." That's nice. Thank yeah. you. I uh, I feel a little better today. Um, today was the first time I you know I went back to the gym. We kind of missed oh, yeah. workouts with COVID, and then travel and travel problems. Delays <laughs> getting back home. Uh, but today it, it, it did feel good. It was the first workout since before I got COVID this last round. Yeah. That I was like, "Oh, I'm back to normal." Yeah. I was like, "Yes." Yeah, you have that healthy glow. Oh, good, 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 good. Yeah. My husband's hot, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> please have a look. Uh, well, thank you, beautiful. You're welcome. Do you um, do you want to do the first Annabelle's? Oh, yeah, or would... do you want me to? I, I'll do I'll do more you can Please. set up. Yeah, you go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay, so our first Annabelle's to thank for supporting this show, and we do thank you so much. Uh, Marissa Delgado, Zach Hart, Camer- uh, Camerson Nelson, Frank Vickerson, Patricia Enriquez, uh, Enriquez, uh, Chelsea Walker, Charlie Edwards, Lisa Balin, Aram, Sean Williamson, uh, and then I think this is Chief, but it's E-I-F instead of I-E-F. Oh, I'm sure it's just a typing error. Oh, okay. God, so, who did that? So Chief, um, but you never know. Like, there's so many different names. True. A- Angelica Roca, um, uh, ooh, t- uh, Tyranny. It's like Tyranny, but it's not spelled like the typical tyrant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, very cool. Uh, Morgan Story, Jennifer Sparks, Melissa Artades, Morgan Riley, Tracy Vink, Jordan Wolf, Jessica Fortson, Victor, Lori Olson, Shenanigan Skywalker, birth name clearly, Maria Maria Cole, Jason Bradshaw, Philip Banfield, Pizzell, Tim and Elise Edinger, Corey Smith, and Amanda Gibbons Parker. Nice. I would like to thank the following Annabelles for making this month's donation to Rainbow Railroad possible. Mm. Amelia Funky, An- uh, Andy and Cat, Allie Wright, Eva Kripe. Nestor Avaya, Mark Key, EJ, Melanie Cook, David Woloski, Megan Rudazil, Aaron Jones, Carrie Jo Robertson, C.L. Simpson, Christian Kirch, David Swarchik, Rachel, Rosie Swoboda, uh, Swoboda, <laughs> Michael Wilcox, Gray Bauer, Ariel. Uh, uh, I, Israel, I might have forgotten a letter. Is it is is this supposed to be Israel Geens Gines? I'm so sorry. I just totally butchered your name. Uh, Isabel Meza, Megan Duggar, Heather Crockett, Kylie Hankinson, Rebecca Craig, Stacy uh, Doherty, Brianna Mason, Gaming with Flavor, first name, Chrissy, and Cherry Brizendine. <laughs> nice. And then I have just have a few spoopy shoutouts. Spoopy shoutouts. To Sean from Kayla, happy three years together. To Milo from Lee, happy 21st birthday. This is a cute one. To Goozlebug from Goozlebear, <laughs> happy birthday, drink some Whipple, and check for shoes. Nice. Uh, a bad magician right there. Yeah. To uh, Xavier from Amelia, happy birthday. To Todd Smith, oh, this is a very sweet, sentimental, heartfelt uh, shout out. To Todd Smith. Jamie Leonard, and Joseph Marabito from Teddy. I love and miss you guys. Teddy is a veteran who served with these individuals who unfortunately did not make it home to their loved ones. We thank all of you for your service. And to William from Rhiannon, happy birthday. Ah, yeah. I know. I never, like, I'm terrible at those. 
Ugh, such a big sacrifice. Yeah, it's just with Memorial Day, we just had, it's like, man, yeah. the ultimate sacrifice. Ultimate. Uh, that is our show. Thank you for continuing to send in your personal tales of terror to my story at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. You can email us for everything else, info at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. Thanks to Logan Keith and Liz Hernandez for their work on social media. To Logan again for running badmagicmerch.com. Thanks to Joe Paisley for producing and directing, Zach Cohen for custom soundbed creation, Heather Rylander for organizing the My Story emails, and to the book editor Drew Atana for polishing and preparing the listener stories for book number three. Thanks to producers Olivia Lee for finding my uh, first story again today, and Sophie Evans again for finding the second. Subscribe to Bad Magic Productions on YouTube if you want to watch a show in addition to listening. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Scared to Death Podcast if you want more content, including pictures that align with each show. And we have a private Facebook group, Creeps and Peepers, now full of 20,000 horror lovers and counting. Good job, guys. Thanks to Liz Hernandez for moderating. Uh, if you don't want to hear ads, if you want monthly bonus episodes, check out our Patreon. Get the entire catalog ad-free and more. Enjoy your nightmares, Creeps and Peepers. Hope you were scared to death. Bye. If spirits threaten me in this place, fight water by water and fire by fire. Banish their souls into nothingness and remove their powers until the last trace. Let these evil beings flee through time and space. Evil may pass through but have no home here within scared to death. Bad Magic Productions. 